All right. Good morning, everyone. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We will pick back up today at chapter 14. We are in the middle of what is called the interregnum, the great pause, because again, our organizational structure, our main signpost, are these cycles of seven, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then finally, the seven censors or the seven censor angels. We're between that second and third set of sevens, again, looking at the the same time frame that all these cycles of seven are looking at, which is from the Christ event, his incarnation through his ascension, up into the end of the world. And, and so each of those episodes is covering it, albeit from a different angle. We're seeing the same thing over and over in a different angle, in different ways, different sides. One of the things we've been focusing on in the interregnum is, of course, the vision of the heavenly woman crowned with 12 stars with the moon under her feet, uh, certainly Mary, but also more than Mary, the church, really representative of the church. And then there's a great red dragon who comes and, of course, tries to devour her child. She gives birth and the child is snatched up to God in heaven. At that point in time in which the child is taken up into heaven, the devil, the red dragon, loses all his power there and is cast out of heaven, can no more accuse the brethren day and night before God, and he's cast out of heaven by uh, Michael and uh, the other angels, the good angels. And then he is thrown down to earth, woe to earth, and he's persecuting the woman, but God is delivering the woman. Frustrated that he can't devour the woman and, and her children, he raises up for himself two beasts, thus forming an anti-trinity. The first is the beast from the sea, and the second, the beast from the earth. The beast from the sea is really expressive of raw power, the power of death, embodied most of all in a perversion of the state, the state used uh, to persecute the church. And then the second beast, the third member of this unholy trinity, uh, really false religion, inside and outside of Christianity that causes signs and wonders, that causes people to worship the raw power structure in place. In the first century, we're talking about Rome. We're talking about the religious structure that supported the power structure that is Rome as such. And then we looked and said, okay, well, how can we see our own worldview through that lens? And a really insightful comment came up after class uh, last, last week, and that was the in terms of thinking it through this apocalyptic lens, seeing the role of quote-unquote science, or at least the way it's used in common parlance, you know, I don't believe in God because I believe in science, which is just, of course, you know, any of you trained formally in, in, in the scientific method knows there's no such thing as science as such, right? I mean, there's a scientific process, 
but there's not this thing called science as such with which you can replace the claims of Christianity or any other faith for that matter. But, but in, isn't it interesting? I mean, so the insight that I received after class goes, and, and I think I remember kind of thinking along these terms previously when I had taught through Revelation, that science with its many signs and wonders, its many technological advancements, its many revelatory events, you know, sort of weds itself, at least in our context, weds itself with the power structure and, and just this constant march toward progress and utopia that we all as a people seem to be on. And again, this is a false, a false religion and in many respects diametrically opposed to Revelation, where Revelation shows us that things are deteriorating <laughs> unto their end. Uh, what is the vision of, of Western man? Things are just going to get better and better. I mean, is anyone worried that there's gonna, not, not going to be an iPhone 13? You know, we all think there will be. And uh, those, who, you know, those who vehemently reject Christianity, a very famous um, and popular, he's kind of the Oprah of our generation, of maybe of my generation, I don't know, um, Joe Rogan, and he's got this podcast and he gets millions and millions of views on his long-form podcast. He, uh, he you know, has rejected Christianity. I think he was raised Roman Catholic, probably not raised with a good sense of law and gospel and the core center of Christianity, but has rejected Christianity as such. And it's fascinating to listen to what he has replaced it with. And there's this half-certain, half-desperate hope that one day our technology will undo death. <laughs> And now this is profoundly common. This isn't just him as a crackpot. I mean, this is profoundly common, not only on the popular level, but even the hopes of the rich and famous, um, that they would be cryogenically frozen or somehow sustained on a hard drive or in the cloud until cures for all things can come and they can be downloaded and live forever. Um, and what we see around us is really the religion of progressivism. Everything's going to get better and better, and it takes many, many forms as to how people think this is going to happen. But again, I think the point being to see that it's diametrically op opposed to what the scriptures say is reality and what the scriptures say is going to happen. Okay, so we can think about the role of science as pseudo-religion the way that people commonly use the language of science. It's just simply a different dogma. It's just a different set of beliefs about the origin of the world and the way the world works. That's all it is when most people say science, really having no idea that that's simply a... I mean, it's also true, too, and this, I mean, this used to... This used to kind of pain me a little, and it doesn't now. It's just the older I get, it annoys me. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess that's the privilege in, of getting older. Everything annoys you. And then, and then you get to a certain stage where you can just voice that. Nobody can do anything about it. <laughs> I'm waiting for that stage. <laughs> uh, but, but, yeah, it's, you know, this idea that, that we can't believe in a six-day creation because science... Okay, well, well, what science are you talking about? The science that contradicts itself on the origin of species every five years? The, the science that contradicts itself on the origin of the, of the universe every 30 years? I mean, it's just, you can, you can look at, uh, there's an author 
uh, Bill Bryson is his name, and I think it's called The Short History of Nearly Everything. I might have the title wrong. But it is well worth your time because he simply, I mean, he's got no, he's got no dog in the show as to whether Christianity is right or not. In fact, it's probably just not even on his radar. But what he is, I think in many ways, what he shows is the development of the quote-unquote body of scientific knowledge. And again, the strength of this, I think, that he intends to show is how quickly we are evolving and developing. Again, this progress narrative. But what he actually shows is that what is believed as absolute fact in the scientific community today is believed as hocus pocus caveman stuff tomorrow. So you decide where you want to put your epistemological legs and build your epistemological house. On the sand <laughs> of science, ever shifting, ever changing, or on the rock of God's word and divine revelation. Who cares if if, uh, if reason box. God never once in the scriptures says, you, you on, I'm only going to tell you that which is reasonable and only expect you to believe that which is reasonable. In fact, doesn't the entire narrative of the scriptures tell us it's exactly the opposite? Eve looked at the fruit with her eyes and saw that it looked reasonably good for food. And she believed reason rather than God's word and off she went and off we went with her. Okay, did I see a hand? Did I see a hand? Yes, no, we're okay. All right, false alarm. So, so yeah, this, this role of, of quote-unquote science and the role of the pseudo-religions around us, and it's really fun, it's really eye-opening when you get these uh, critics. Um, I'm going to butcher his last name because I've never actually heard it. I think I've only seen it in print. Rod, Rod Dreher? 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 How do you say it? Dreher? Okay, yeah. But, I mean, you have, these, you have these kind of Christian critics of culture, and they align things for us and just beautifully revelatory. I mean, it's fun, but it's not that fun. I've been reading that kind of genre for a long time. It's, it's fun because there's all these insights of like, whoa, so that's really how all these things go together, and it really is a religion, not a, not a political movement. You know, what we're experiencing today in progressivism in America is really a religion. Uh, it's a religious movement, at best to be understood. The reason why it's depressing is these folks that give us these insights never tell us what the solution is. <laughs> they never tell us, okay, and, and here's how we conquer this false religion. Um, it's always just, hey, here it is, and maybe here's how we weather the storm at best. But uh, yeah, yeah, so to think through the apocalyptic lens in our own time and see how the pseudo-religions around us here in the West serve to cause us to worship the power, the power being death, that's the chief power and authority of the devil, really codified in the state as the one who is able to wield that power and determine for the rest of us peons what's right and what's wrong. Boy, I could go on and on. I'll have to stop myself. But I think one more, one more just point is when you talk to when you talk to people who, about moral issues who have uh, either have no knowledge of the church or have long ago detached themselves from the church, what you find is that they're, they're more or less allowing the state to dictate to them what is right or wrong. Their concept of morality really doesn't go much past, is it legal or not? And if it's legal, it's okay, and if it's illegal, it's not. There's no reflection on a deeper morality. There's no ability to sit in judgment over the power of the state. And so one is simply enslaved to that. 
All right. Well, so we have been reflecting on these two beasts, their interrelationship and their interrelationship with the great red dragon and how this trinity of evil wages war against the woman and her children. And again, by earthly standards, is quite successful. Is quite successful. In chapter 14, verse 1, we finally get a reprieve from these, uh, the visions of these evil beasts and dragons. Chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now, the Mount, Mount Zion is rich and, and a loaded theological place, geographical place, but for our intents and purposes, Mount Zion is, is the mountain of Jerusalem, is the mount where Christ is crucified. It's the mount of our salvation and the salvation of God's people. That the Lamb was there slain but now stands shows His victory and the victory of His purpose. So I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now this Lamb, as we said last week, is juxtaposed in terms of the vision with what we see in chapter 13, verse 11. The false beast rising up out of the earth has two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So here that vision is juxtaposed with this, the vision of the true lamb, standing upon Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000. Now, we talked about this because we ran across this vision, or this number, I mean, in uh, chapter 7. In that, in that vision that takes place between, I think it's the sixth and the seventh seals. And in that, in that vision, it is very clear that the 144,000 are representative of the church militant on earth. You have this you have this 12 times 12,000, 12 being the number of God's people, uh, signified also by the woman with the 12 stars on her head. And then you have this, you have this 12 times 12,000, the thousand um, being perfect. It's the perfect number. So this is the perfect fulfillment of God's number. The fact that they're ordered this way, all the, all the language draws us to the militaristic motif, as it does even more so here. In fact, it's kind of taking chapter 7 and taking chapter 14 together where our commentators really come to conclude that the 144,000 is a picture, a definitive picture of the church on earth. All right, so this is the church militant, which is then um, also going to be depicted here as the church triumphant because on Mount Zion stands not only the Lamb but also with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Remember, this is to be contrasted with chapter 13, verse 16, where it, the beast, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell. Notice the mammon there so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. All right, and so we see the connection there between the name or the number on the forehead, and then 
again, chapter 14, verse 1, the very end, the 144,000 are described as having his name, the Lamb's name, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. So again, here you see this this binary reality. There is no middle ground. You're either marked with the beast and worshiping the dragon, or you're marked with uh, the the name of the Lamb and his Father on your forehead. So you're in one camp or the other. And we reflected on the baptismal nature of that marking, how in the early church the sign of the cross was made upon the forehead. So to have the name written upon the forehead, clear baptismal reference, um, belonging to God, being sealed by God with his name, with his identifying mark. Verse 2 of chapter 14, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters. Now we've heard this before described as, in, in, in likely terms as the sound of God's voice, this many waters. But here it's not going to be God. This is a fascinating connection. So the voice is like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. All of this has been associated with God before. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song. Okay, there's our first indicator in the text that we're not talking about a singular voice, but a collective voice. To whom does this voice belong, this collective voice? The saints. This is such beauty. I mean, here's the beauty and the poetry of what John's able to do in the apocalyptic genre. By previously uniting in our minds God's voice with the sound of many waters and the sound of thunder, now he links that to the saints, and you can see the connection. As is the Father, so are his sons. As he speaks, so they speak. And the voices are distinguishable only by person, not by content, you see. Not by sound might be a more accurate way to put it. Okay? And so around, around about halfway through verse 2, we see the first difference. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So this is, you know... <laughs> I don't have a great voice, as you all know. You have to tolerate that. But I sing loud and proud anyway, because, and we all should, because this is how it sounds to God in heaven. It sounds like harpists playing on their harps. I mean, it's the same thing if, you, if you've had kids and you've sat with them in the pew and they're belting something out. And I mean, objectively speaking, it's just terrible. But they're your kids and they're singing God's songs and there's nothing more pleasing you could possibly imagine. There's no song more beautiful. Yeah, well... By analogy. Also certainly hopeful that we will all receive slightly better voices than we currently have. (laughs) Though some of you don't need it. You're very good as you are. All right. Well, beautiful sound then. Beautiful sound. The roar of many waters, loud thunder, and harps. And we are told that it is a new song. An interesting interpretive point that I don't really want to get into the details of, but it's probably not so much that the song is new in and of itself. It's that the song is new for this group of people. These are sinners who are now given to participate in the heavenly liturgy. 
when you tie this back in with the themes earlier and you, and you tie together um, the linguistic markers in this text with those that have went before, what we are being reminded of is that all of Revelation, with its glory and magnificence, with the one who sits upon the throne and the seven-horned, seven-eyed lamb and the great sevenfold spirit with his burning candelabra and the glories of the 24 elders and the four living creatures and the countless host all around, angel and man, uh, praising God, we are brought to the remembrance that this liturgy is ongoing and perpetual and is at the heart and essence of all of creation. The fact that we can't experience it or can only experience it at times or can only experience it in degree is simply a matter of our fallenness. If we were attuned to it, we would be just like the psalmist and we'd be saying, don't you see the trees are clapping their hands? Don't you see the sun is preaching? Don't you see all of creation is glorifying God? Don't you see it is all one collective huge liturgy and cosmic divine, uh, divine service? <laughs> no, I don't see. What's the, what's the score? Did the Dodgers win? You know, like, yeah. I'm not, I'm not knocking sports or our preoccupations as such. But there is something that we're exchanging in our, modern, in our modern day when we can't simply put away all our distractions and entertainment and just take in what is and meditate and, on what is. And, and Revelation sets us free as Lutherans to do that. It's a cosmic divine liturgy that is taking place. Now, how is it a new song for these, for these saints? Because we were sinners. We are unable to participate in the heavenly liturgy. And because of the redemption and the victory of the Lamb slain on Mount Calvary, now standing on Mount Calvary, we have been cleansed. We have been marked with the name of Him and His Father. We stand completely separate over and against these two beasts and the dragon. And we are brought back in tune with the cosmos. We are brought back in tune with the song and liturgy of creation. It's absolutely stunning and beautiful, and it runs as a theme all the way throughout Revelation. If you remember, John's revelation happens to him on the Lord's Day in the context of worship, in the context of divine service. So that theme is always going on in Revelation. And here we see then that their singing is the singing of a new song before the throne. Verse 3 of chapter 14. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Now what's happening here spatially is heaven and earth are being brought together. Because previously, when John sees the one seated upon the throne and the Lamb, when John sees the, uh, the four living creatures, he is taken up into heaven. Now what is he seeing? He is seeing Mount Zion, earthly, and he's seeing the throne of God there with the Lamb and the four living creatures there. This is a foreshadowing of the climax of Revelation. The dwelling place of God is with man. It is really the essence of what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's why he gives us the supper and calls it the New Testament and gives us his body and blood to eat because that is precisely the link between what the creed calls visible creation and what the creed calls invisible creation. 
what we're calling shorthand heaven and earth. Okay, these two are brought to one in a foretaste in the Lord's Supper. And what's being envisioned here is the two being brought to one in a literary foretaste of what's to come at the climax of this book and then also at the climax of reality. This is what we're all waiting for. This is the great hope. So we are joining in the heavenly liturgy singing the new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, there's, there's a real key. Um, these are the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. So if you're going to take that 144,000 and be super literal about it, you know, I, I think the Jehovah's Witnesses try to do that. And those ranks got closed a long time ago. Because, but you also have to, you have, if you're going to be literal there, then you also have to be literal with the word redeemed. It is they who are redeemed in an exclusive sense, you see. So you can't have one without the other. Much better to understand 144,000 poetically, apocalyptically, like all the other numbers in Revelation, and understand then all who have redeemed, been redeemed are participants in this 144,000. So no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. That is, in plain English, we who are Christians. No one else can learn the cosmic liturgical song. There is a... Uh, There is a small expression of this uh, when, when people are unfamiliar with the, with the earthly liturgy, when people are unfamiliar in the house of God and they don't know the words, they don't know the song, they don't know anything. There's a microcosm of this much deeper reality, isn't there? Um, you see this at funerals from time to time. You see that people have... Uh, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a judgmental view that I'm going after here. I'm not casting judgment. I am simply saying it is observable um, how well one knows the song, how well one knows Christianity, how well one can participate in liturgy, how at home someone is. It's, it, it might even be worth some self-introspection uh, um, because most, most of the time when people are rejecting uh, the liturgy or rejecting church, they're not really rejecting the form. If that were true, we would have stumbled upon the perfect form by now. It's also what's so asinine about this quest for contemporary worship. Like we're all trying to find the form. There is, it's not the form. It's the substance that's the problem. And you're not going to change the substance. And you can watch people and observe people be alienated from the substance or be at home in the substance. Okay, well... Be that as it may, it's one, of the, it's one of the ways that revelation can come to life right before your very eyes and uh, in some respects very much hearten you, in other respects kind of depress you. So these are, these are Christians. Only they can learn the song. They are redeemed from the earth, we are told. And then verse 4, we get more of the language that when you take this with chapter 7 really has most, uh, most conservative commentators from all kinds of pockets of Christianity in agreement that this is the church militant. We're seeing it here as, you know, becoming the church glorified. Verse 4, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women 
for they are virgins. This fits perfectly the militaristic view. Um, most military men were a virgin age in the ancient world. Uh, virg virginity also, of course, expresses purity in biblical culture and uh, abstention from what is normal for a greater and higher purpose. And so that, um, that's indicative here as well. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Again, how are you not going to say that that's all Christians? These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. That is the portion for God and the Lamb. We're going to come up, the climax of this section is going to be the harvest. And these are the fruit, the first fruits. These are appointed to God. The rest are appointed elsewhere. So again, I think that this language is indicative that the 144,000 here are all Christians, are the whole church on earth. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Of course, the dragon is the liar, so they can't be associated with the dragon, and they are blameless. Blameless is different than sinless. They're cleansed. And so they're blameless in that respect, blameless in the sense that they're not participants, willing participants in the ways of the world. They're choosing the way of life, not the way of death, as an extension of the forgiveness that they've received, the righteousness credited to them freely for Christ's sake. So there's your, there's your picture. There's your picture. On the one hand, you have all the people worshiping these two beasts and ultimately worshiping the dragon. Here's the only other the only other portion of humanity, these 144,000. Again, I don't know how much to combat this because I don't know how popular it is. It probably isn't worth saying at all. But again, if you're going to take 144,000 literal, then it has to be Jewish virgin males also. Right? And it's like people want to take this, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they want to take the 144,000 literally, but they don't want to say, well, they're all Jewish virgin males. It's like, what, 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 what? what happened to consistency, you see? I won't belabor the point. I, hopefully you can simply see through this as, as nonsensical anyway. Um, but this is a beautiful, beautiful image of the church then, uh, militant, who is, who is waging this battle. And, and as we're going to see, and as we have seen with the two witnesses and that imagery of the church, I mean, it goes poorly for us by earthly standards. By earthly standards, it goes poorly for us. The same way by earthly standards, it goes poorly for Jesus. In John 6, he's like, okay, I... I Everyone's gone away. Are you also going to go away? I mean, he lost his whole congregation. And he's put to death as a criminal. And he closes his eyes in death. And that's, that's the end of his earthly mode of life, his humiliation. We're in our earthly mode of life and our humiliation. It's, as Jesus so eloquently puts it, um, if they did this to the, to the master, how is the servant going to escape? Are you more than the master? So don't try. I mean, there's the beauty and the, and the genius of what Jesus is saying. It's like, you're not going to win the world over by your winsomeness. You're not going to win the world over by being nice. Uh, and, and increasingly, we're seeing that in, we're seeing the missteps of those people around us. I mean, this is our own context. Just trying to look at things today through this apocalyptic, apocalyptic lens. And many in the church today think that oh, the way to deal with the radical left and these people who are just completely anti-Christian and, you know, 
want to want reparations from us and want us to go away and want us to just hide out in our churches if that maybe just hide out in our houses that maybe if we're just nice to these people and and try to give them a little something then they'll go away yeah that's not how it works that's completely misunderstanding the source and center of this false religion that is anti-christian it comes from the from the dragon and the two beasts it's not going to stop with you playing nice it's not going to stop with you being winsome it wants to do to you what it did to jesus But our victory is being faithful, not unto victory, but faithful unto death. And in being faithful unto death, then we become victorious. We humble ourselves with Christ just as he humbled himself, even to the point of death, that we might be exalted with him, just as God exalted him above every other name, so we too shall be exalted with him. And that's precisely the picture of the 144,000 standing around Jesus at the place of his crucifixion, at the place of his salvation. The worst the devil could do, he did, and he lost. To put it overly simplistically, we lose now and win eternally, while those who follow the beasts win now and lose eternally. So, you know, you want to win now, you'll lose eternally. You want to lose now, you'll win eternally. That's it. And that's precisely what Jesus says in so many different ways. Whoever hates his life will find it, will keep it. Whoever loves his life will lose it. To put it another way, this whole life in existence right now for Christians is Good Friday. It's Good Friday. So we may as well just recognize it. Doesn't mean that there aren't triumphant parts, victorious parts, faithful parts, beautiful parts. There were for Jesus on the cross too. But it's best to understand this part of reality and and our lives here as Good Friday with, with the firm and certain hope that Easter is coming and that Easter is going to be quite different. Easter is going to be vindication and triumph and blessing and all the things of which uh, Revelation sings. And, by the way, it is also going to be the putting away of the dragon, his two beasts, and all who followed them. And that, that gives the saints in heaven cause to rejoice. If we can't rejoice with them in that moment, then something's screwed up in our theology and in our heads. But we'll get there. I'm getting a touch above uh, or ahead of myself here, rather. All right. We are drawing very close to the conclusion of the interregnum. The next vision is a vision of three angels, and that picks up seamlessly at verse 6. And this just happens to be Reformation Sunday, and this is our Reformation text. Then I saw another angel. It's our first text of the readings. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God. Because previously the fear was only for these beasts and the devil and their power of sin and death. Instead, fear God. I mean, that's very much the gospel because it's like, don't fear them, fear who you should fear, respect who you should respect. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. 
this again is just beautiful, symmetrical preaching. Because again, the, the, where we see the dragon at first is in heaven. We see the beast on earth. We see the, burst in, the beast in the waters, excuse me, the beast in the waters. So heaven, earth, and instead of worshiping them and giving glory to them, we worship the maker of these things. The maker of these things. The maker of the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. All right, there's the message of the first the first angel. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. All right, well, there is a lot here, and we will simply touch on this because the character of Babylon as such uh, only grows and increases as we move through the remainder of Revelation. Babylon, historically speaking, of course, is the nation, uh, the, the pagan nation that swallows up Judah, the remaining two tribes. We're talking about 587, 586 B.C., and uh, you remember the northern ten tribes had all, already been swallowed up by Assyria, and that was in 722 uh, B.C. And so these you know, roughly 150-ish years later, Judah is swallowed up and taken into captivity by Babylon. Uh, many of the minor prophets speak about this event, and this event, of course, is cataclysmic because it means the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. With Ezra and some of the other prophets, Nehemiah, you have some of the other prophets talking about the rebuilding of that temple, that earthly temple. Okay? But Babylon then takes its place in the Old Testament as one of the chief enemies of God's people, right along with Egypt, for example. Egypt and Babylon. You might even throw Edom in there. I mean, you could throw the Philistines in there. Just, but in terms, of, in terms of great enemies of God's people... Yeah, you certainly, certainly Babylon is there. So, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Uh, Babylon itself historically, of course, falls as all nations do, given enough time. And there was no doubt rejoicing in God's people when that, when that occurred. But this then is more than that event because we're talking about, you know, some 600 years in the future. So, who is, who is Babylon? Again, Babylon is this worldly, earthly power, this corruption of government that persecutes and destroys God's people and the things of God. So this angel um, follows the first angel. He's called, the first angel is calling us to worship God, not the beasts. The second angel is saying, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality here you see a kind of false Christ because Christ would have the nations drink the wine of salvation, the wine of his blood given and shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. And here this, this creature, this entity, this Babylon the great has all the nations drinking the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality.
There's probably too many things to go in, into here to do justice to it. And I'm relying largely on the observations of others. The only one who pops into my mind right now is probably Peter Kraft, a, kind of a Roman Catholic apologist who's very much like the, the living version of C.S. Lewis. But he draws some of these themes together, although I don't think he touches on this verse. In this verse, you, you start to see an anti-sacrament here. If you look back, we, we belabored this probably, hopefully, so you're familiar enough with it at this moment. But in chapter 13 and chapter 14, we talked about the difference between the mark of the beast and the, and the name of God on the forehead. We talked about there's a baptism and an anti-baptism. Well, here we're being introduced to this idea of there's a sacrament of the altar and an anti-sacrament of the altar. Okay? And it's very subtly done, and you have to really think and think in Johannine terms and categories. His gospel's super helpful for understanding this. But what's going on here is whereas Christ would have everyone join his Eucharist, the cup of his blood, and thus be one with him, the Antichrist, the Babylon, is having everyone join in her Eucharist to drink and thus be one with her. Now, when we become, uh, this is why the Lord's Supper is called a foretaste of the feast to come, and the feast to come is a wedding feast, and there are, there are marital, uh, the two becoming one flesh, there are marital themes inherent in the Lord's Supper itself. To eat his body and drink his blood is to become one with him. I mean, we know this to be a completely sexually pure and decent thing, and yet that's almost the closest referent, the two becoming one, the way that Adam and Eve become one, Christ and his church, in a much more deeper, mysterious, and profound way, become one. There's a, there's a kind of marriage that takes place there. What is, what is the anti-sacrament? What is the anti-joining of yourself, body, and soul with Christ? It's fornication. It's joining yourself, body, and soul with that which is not Christ. Shorthand, it's sexual immorality. This is why sexual immorality and adultery, or excuse me, that is adultery, and idolatry, adultery and idolatry always go hand in hand. It's one of these great mysteries that stands out to you if you don't really grasp this connection because it's just always like, why? Why are these things connected? They are, and it's at moments like this in the text where you can see that sexual immorality is an anti-sacrament. Um, Peter Kraft, I think, famously says, uh, gosh, I'm going to butcher it, I bet. But he compares the language of the Eucharist where, where Christ says, this is my body, and the implication is for you, self-sacrifice for you, and the chant of um, the abortionists, this is my body, and it's not for you, even when for you is their own child, you see. There's an anti-sacramental, and of course, of course, I mean, I don't know how much I have to explain here. Of course, you're aware of the connection between abortion on demand and free promiscuity. I mean, the two go hand in hand. That's why people are so passionate about keeping uh, abortion. Because if abortion goes away, their sexual freedom goes away. So they're, they're, it's the sexual immorality, the killing of babies, the worshiping of Baal, and the worshiping of Molech always go hand in hand, and these things form an anti-sacrament, a, a demonic binding together into one flesh 
in, in precisely the way that I think John does so well here. He also will, um, excuse me, excuse me, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. All right. Well, the note of the second angel, well, she, well, he gives us all of this sort of information, which is going to be fleshed out way more as we go along. The good news, why this is a gospel angel, is because of the first word that he says. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon. Fallen is this entity who does this. That's the good news. The good news is we are finally free from this. The world is free from this. Okay, so in the first place, worship God, not the beast. In the second place, drink the cup of the sun, not the cup of Babylon, because Babylon is fallen. The lamb stands on Mount Zion. <clears throat> All right, let's get to the third angel, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Now here the, the imagery shifts, but again, it's sacramental imagery. It's deeply sacramental imagery because we're talking about the sign and the image. worships the beast and, and its image and receives a mark or a sign on his forehead or on his hand, then he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So now the drinking, the cup, the wine, shifts from the second angel to the third. In the second angel's sermon, it's the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality with which she meant to intoxicate the nations and lead them away from God and lead them away from union with Christ into sexual union with demons, to borrow from Paul. And now uh, that imagery changes to punitive imagery. And this, of course... Um, I might have done an entire class on this once before this theme, but the, the wine of God's wrath, this is precisely why Jesus in the garden says and prays, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. What cup is he talking about? Precisely this cup. You can go to Jeremiah, maybe next week when I have a little bit more time, I'll dig into some of the background for this. But this is a theme throughout the Old Testament that those who are under God's wrath are forced to drink the cup of his wrath, which deludes them, intoxicates them, uh, makes them naked in their shame, etc. Uh, in the language of Revelation, or in the language of Romans, gives them over to a depraved mind. The, the terrifying thing about our present state here in the West, in America, and the LGBT stuff is, you know, in the back of our minds, it's kind of like, well, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't, you know, why isn't it Sodom and Gomorrah? Why isn't it fiery wrath and, and, and a swift end to all of this that's so offensive to him? And the answer that 
Paul gives in Rome is almost more horrifying. This is indicative, the very LGBT stuff, the very gender bending and homosexual stuff is indicative of God's wrath present tense. He gives them over to a depraved mind. It, it's, not as though, it's not as though fire and brimstone is, is necessary. This is already the punishment. It's already here. That is the embodiment of God's wrath is when his creation becomes so unhinged from him that it becomes completely godless and unnatural and, and perverted in, in the truest sense of the word. Okay, so this is um, the, wine of, the wine of God's wrath is what Jesus drinks for us. And there's this beautiful theology where we, man, I've got to do this next week because this is one of my favorite soapboxes. But, but this, is, uh, this is imagery we've lost with, with the individual cups because the Gospels hold so firmly to this that he took the cup, his cup. And the theology behind that is, does Jesus in his sinless, perfectly righteous state, it, where is he going to get the cup of God's wrath from? There's no sin. There's no wrath. Who has the cup of God's wrath rightly? We do. What is Jesus doing when he takes the cup, his cup, and gives it to us? There's a trade. There's a trade. That's why those two things happen that same night, the night he's betrayed. He gives us his cup, righteousness, life, and salvation. And in that very moment of giving us his cup, he is taking from us our cup, the cup of God's wrath that ultimately he says in the garden, not my will, but thy will be done. And he drinks it in our place. So to celebrate, that's why you can't celebrate the Lord's Supper without celebrating the cross or the cross without the supper because there are two cups being drank. It's also why Jesus says, I thirst right at the end, right at the consummation. It's like, it's like he's saying, like, let it be finished, you know, before he says it's, it's finished. Um, it's like, I thirst. Let's drink this thing to the dregs. Let's bring this thing to an end. The full wrath of God poured out here so that I may give my cup of forgiveness, life, and salvation to sinners. Okay, well, if you've rejected then Christ's cup, what remains for you? This cup of wrath, because you're exchanging it back. Christ is saying, my cup for you, and you're saying, forget that. Then there's only one other cup. You're going to drink one cup or the other. So it's the cup of God's wrath. Well, we'll meditate on these themes again next week. Uh, let's simply break off here uh, in this third angel's sermon. The Lord be with you.